is up, everybody? Thank you all for joining me on the latest Mortcast, part of the CSG and MHS Network. I'm, of course, your host, Jeff Morton. Okay, I'm recording this actually an hour before the Nuggets play the Memphis Grizzlies on uh, Tuesday night. So, um, but this is something of a research slash epiphany podcast. The first half is going to be about Michael Malone. The second half is going to be about a rule change that I'm going to propose that is pretty radical um, that I think will rebalance the league. Um, And we'll get into that in the second half. But first, let me tell you a story. In 2000, uh, it was the 99-2000 season. Um, And uh, I think this was about January. Um, I'm going to have to go back through my memory banks here, but I think it was roughly there that um, the Nuggets had an 0-4 road trip, and it was terrible. Um, As I remember, this was part of this weird season where the Nuggets won 40 games somehow. Um, It was the peak of the post-1995 Nuggets. Everything had basically led up to them finally somehow piecing together a 40-win season. And uh, part of the whole thing was Dan Issel came back to be a head coach. Um, He got more money being a head coach. Um, His heart wasn't in it very clearly. Um, He probably didn't want to coach this, uh, be a coach ever again, but he was the general manager. He had put together this team. Um, The Nuggets were vacillating back and forth between having owners and not having owners for a period of about three years. And uh, this was right at the end of that period. In fact, I think this was shortly before, shortly after Stan Kroenke had bought the Denver Nuggets when Jen, Kiki Vandeweghe, uh, Dan Issel hired Kiki Vandeweghe to be the general manager. And uh, the Nuggets went on a four-game road trip. It was terrible. I think they played a game in Utah or something like that, and they they lost by a lot. So, um, or Orlando. I think it was actually the East Coast. So it was, it was it was Orlando, and the Nuggets didn't didn't play well at all. And they came back, and and Is- Jan Issel had called a practice for the very next day after they got back. So um, if you can picture a four-game road trip, you're tired. Um, you don't want to. Uh, be the first thing you do practice the next day. Um, it was not done that often for very good reason. Um, Issel, if you ask him to this day, will probably say that that was a mistake. Um, the interesting thing about this is they went on a big winning streak shortly after this incident. Um, but one of what happened was uh, led by Nick Van Exel and about probably about seven players. It wasn't the entire team. Um, there was a mutiny that was led for Issel calling practice. And the the basis of this was he called practice basically as a punishment. And that is a no-no with players, even all the way back in 2000. Um, you think, you know, you think this is just a modern thing that would happen. Well, that's not the case. Um, there was a big time, and those old Nuggets heads will remember this. You, you, you remember vividly Nick Van Hexel leading this. It was national news. Um, and my memory of this was that it, it, was, it, it had focused around the, the, the calling of practice the very next day. Well, about a week ago, maybe two weeks ago, 
That was a week ago. Michael Malone had done something similar. The Nuggets were on a two, three game road trip and called to practice the very next day. Um, now there's something, or there's one thing in common between that 2000 Nuggets team and, uh, this 2022 Nuggets team is, uh, in 2000, there was a third year player named Ryan Bowen on that squad that was part of the team that staged the mutiny. I don't believe Bowen was part of that, to be quite honest with you, but, um, he was on that team and he is also one of Michael Malone's most trusted assistants. I'm I'm 90% sure that I mean I and I have no idea cuz I haven't talked to anyone about this specific thing but I'm sure that there is a connection between Ryan Bowen being on that team and the and Malone canceling the practice for the next day which is something you you do not do there is unwritten rules in the NBA and that's one of them um Jim Boylan ran into some almost mutiny issues um when he uh, staged a practice or tried to stage practice um, this after a second day of a back-to-back. Well, this wasn't quite as bad as coming back from a four-game road trip where you got your asses kicked and you was calling practice as punishment. And you never call practice as punishment. You don't do that in the NBA. And Dan Issel, um in 19, you know, in the 70s wouldn't have stood for that either. So... It was a bad thing. It blew up. And the remarkable thing is the Nuggets, like I said, went on a long winning streak and got themselves into playoff position um, before collapsing down the stretch after Antonio McDyess got injured. But that was a um, both a galvanizing and a black eye moment for this team. I'm talking about what Malone, happened with Malone and the way he chose to approach this. It's very clear that his agitation was reaching um, a big point when they had won against two games in a row against the Houston Rockets and Malone uh, put the starters back in. You could tell the starters were pissed off at him. Um, against the Houston Rockets when they were up by 20. It, it was Malone doing his, uh, this is still a young team um, stuff, which is you don't do with a team full of veterans, and which is what this team is. It's a team that is uh, entirely made up of veterans now. You just can't do that anymore. Um, I mean, think about it this way. This is, this is Nikola Jokic's eighth season. He's been here as long as Michael Malone has. So uh, there is a you, you there's only so much you can get away with in the NBA. And um, it was a tense time. It wasn't and you could tell the vibes around the team were really bad. And the point I'm making here is ever since the moment Malone uh, put the starters back in, in the, against the Houston up until when they barely beat the Charlotte Hornets after Jokic had a game of a lifetime, 40 points, 27 rebounds, 10 assists, two, two steals. Um, when it got to that point, post-game Charlotte, Malone was a lot more circumspect and I would say damn near philosophical, more than he's usually. And... Okay, anyone who listens to CSG knows that um, my I have a very consistent uh, philosophy on Michael Malone, is that hothead coaches have an expiration date. 
Uh, I have been trying for years to get Michael Malone to stop being a hothead. Um, it has been something, if, if we're going to talk about something that has been the most, the, the hardest thing for Malone to do, it is for him to stop being a hothead. It is something that is part of his being. Everyone around the Denver Nuggets knows about Malone's hot-headedness. It is just in, built into his DNA. And one of the issues we have with Michael Malone is that hot-headed coaches work really actually very well with young teams. Um, because they're coming in from college, they're probably used to disciplinarian coaches in college or wherever they came up. They're, they're, they're coaches have a lot more control at younger levels than they do in the NBA. And um, Malone actually had to do a lot of work changing the culture based on the wreckage of the, the two years of Bryant Shaw. And he accomplished that largely. Um, and really took a lot of effort and, and Tim Connolly weeding out some of the, his, his own mistakes, uh, from 2013 and, and shaping this roster to be more of a, uh, less, uh, of a bad culture situation. And I think that his value really showed in that era. Particularly from 2015 to 2017, 18, right around there, before they started making the playoffs. Um, but when culture coaches, they always have a tendency, and I think I, I will lump Tom Thibodeau into this um, kind of thing. He's having a good run with the, with the, the Knicks uh, as of this moment. Um, but there is a, if you, there, there's players, and this is the NBA, and, and if you, they feel, if the hot-headedness begins to be tuned out, much like if a coach was a player's coach, they would begin to be tuned out. Um, the best coaches have both. Um, Phil Jackson is the best coach I've ever seen, and, and people always get on me then with not saying Greg Popovich. Greg Popovich has always been the same, and he was allowed to be an asshole because of Tim Duncan. You've seen his record sans Tim Duncan. It is not the same. Um, Tim Duncan allowed... Greg Popovich to be Greg Popovich. Um, but in the year before Tim Duncan and the year subsequent to Duncan's retirement, the, 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 it's not the same. And now Popovich has largely coasted in on his reputation um, for the last four years, uh, five years. Um, but there is a, there is an expiration date to people, to things like that. So you cannot be all of one thing. You cannot be, the disciplinarian coach and you can't be the buddy coach um and the best coaches are the ones that do both and who can somehow blend both kind of like steve kerr was able to do once he replaced mark jackson um and that's just one example uh there's another example eric spolstra spolstra is a, actually a hard ass he's a hard ass coach but he also is able to relate to players and in, in part of the just long-standing quote-unquote heat culture part of the, of the heat. One of the things you have seen from Michael Malone, particularly after the Charlotte game, was him starting to include himself in the problem. One of the things that Michael Malone has really suffered from is excluding himself from the issue. It's always like, why are the players doing this to me? 
I am telling them everything they need to do. Why are they doing this to me? If only they would listen to me, then everything would be great. And what you saw post-Charlotte game, as I pop the mic, is a... Uh, is a maybe the beginning of an acknowledgement that he can no longer exclude himself from the greater problem that is the Denver Nuggets, particularly on defense. And I think what you saw in his post-game presser was him slowly and probably a little late on coming to the under understanding that he is part of the ecosystem that is the Denver Nuggets. He cannot exclude himself from that. And I think that was very important for Michael Malone. That was extremely important for Michael Malone to understand that he is part of the ecosystem of the team. Um, there is a job preservation-ish kind of thing with almost every NBA coach. If you frame things in a, uh, uh, it's not my fault thing, you can stave off GMs blaming you for problems that happen. The way, reason that doesn't wash anymore is because Malone's been here for eight years. He has reached the point uh, that George Carl reached by the time uh, Josh Kroenke left, that George Carl go nine years after he was the NBA, you know, head coach of the Nuggets, where he was hired in 2005, uh, midway through the season. He, he, there is no longer a, he can't absolve himself from the issue. He can't say, and particularly with Michael Porter Jr. not being here for the last 12 games, uh, 13 now as of tonight, that he can't blame it on one player anymore. He has been exposed. He has been le and by I mean exposed exposure as in like as in like if you're climbing on a knife edge on a ridge going up to a fourteener uh say like capital peak um and you're going on that knife edge and there's like sheer drops on every side of you, you're exposed, and that's what I mean, not exposed as in like you know you're exposed as a fraud. That is what has happened to Mike Malone, and he's confronting the fact that he can't blame one player anymore and there are deeper systemic issues with this Nuggets team which is why he emphasized that he thought this despite the second half being basically the fourth quarter being horrible against the the uh, defensively against the uh, 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 Hornets he he managed to come to some sort of and I think an epiphany that he also was part of the problem which is what I have kind of one of I've been wanting from him is to for him to understand that that and as, as I've said over and over points scored is no longer defense in the in the, in the NBA and hasn't been for 10 years. Uh, you have to judge defense differently. You cannot be like the 1993 Knicks. You have to be. You, if you are going to coach an NBA team in 2022, you have to understand that you're going to give up points because the league is stacked against you. And I think as far as defense goes, it, the defense is not existent anymore uh, because of rules changes and spacing. It's just harder and harder and harder to play defense in the league. 
Uh, the NBA has made it so. It's legislated it that way. You have to understand this. And I think some part of every NBA, pay, NBA coach knows this. Um, and it's starting to sink in. And I think a little Mo Malone is probably a little slower than other coaches and slower than I would like. But he's starting to realize that he's probably part of the problem. And his approach to this is part of the problem. And his behavior the last eight games or so has not helped things. And you could tell by his demeanor and his mood that he was like the light bulb went on over his head. He is going through an existential crisis right now, folks, but it's going to hopefully make him a better coach. And I think that is a sign of growth for Michael Malone. All right. I never compliment Michael Malone on this podcast, but I'm going to do it right now. It is a sign of growth that he is finally realizing that he is part of the ecosystem that is this Denver Nuggets team. And I think that, more than anything else, is going to help him try to diagnose how to play situational defense going forward and not try to have the unrealistic standard of becoming the in the 90s Knicks again. And I think that part is going to be helping him going forward, and I, I am... Looking forward to see how he approaches it, you know, as, as we're still before this Memphis game. So before I get to the second part of the podcast where I propose a rules change to help defenses in the NBA, let me talk to you about Blanchard Family Wines, located between 18th and 19th, and Blake and Wazee in beautiful lower downtown Denver, Colorado, just a couple blocks away from Coors Field, right in the middle of the dairy block there, always online at bfwcolorado.com. Um, they got... Every manner of wine that you could possibly have. You know, obviously, anyone who's followed me on Twitter knows that I'm a wine junkie. I, I always ask for recommendations. Uh, thanks to the people who um, uh, helped me out uh, before I got sick this last week. Uh, you really were uh, great. Uh, I will try every one of those, but my old standby is Blanchard Family Wines. I just finished off a bottle of the 2018 Cabernet. It's really good. Uh, but they got great Pinot there, of course. It's Sonoma County grapes. Uh, but they also got partnerships with Western Slope Wineries, which they'll uh, really, really are, are really good. And they get the best of what Colorado has to offer, which is really good. Whether you like whites and reds or rosés or blends, they got everything you need at One Stop Shop. And they got a location in Fort Collins. So if you're up in the north part of Colorado, Go and stop by their Fort Collins location. Once again, they're located between 18th and 19th and Blake and Wazee in beautiful lower downtown Gamer, Colorado, just a couple blocks away from Coors Field, right in the middle of the dairy block. They're always online at BFW Denver, BFWColorado.com. See, I already did it. Uh, they're on Facebook and Instagram under Blanchard Family Wines. When you go in or talk to them, tell them Jeff Morton from CSG Podcast sent you. It was, oh, I don't know. 2001, where the NBA decided that Shaquille O'Neal was no longer going to be the problem the, with the way they officiate. Um, and I, I have pointed this out, and I made link to the, the podcast I did about this way back when, um, but where I talked about how really it was Shaquille O'Neal that was the genesis momentum of why the NBA changed rules, because the NBA was in a very weird spot post-Jordan. Um, they couldn't make Allen Iverson. Allen Iverson was too controversial for them to make a star. Um, Shaquille O'Neal was very popular. He was doing movies, particularly in the '90s. But it seemed like it was really. It seemed like when Jordan retired, the entire league just dropped because Jordan was a superstar, a god. And there has been no single athlete to ever come into any sport in the in, in the uh, United States of America that has affected 
uh, culture as much as Michael Jordan. It's just simply true. Um, so Shaquille O'Neal was dominating. He was dominating in a big way. And one of the problems that the league had in 2001 when they decided to do something radical was they couldn't officiate him. Officiating Shaquille O'Neal was extremely hard. Plus, they had a very slow uh, game, defensive-focused game, that uh, was leading to scores like 72 to 74. Okay, And the league did, deemed this to be an issue. This is where the league fundamentally changed, and it was led by Jerry Colangelo. Um, Jerry Colangelo had a guard-based team. I think Jason Kidd was still on the... Uh, uh, was he still on the... In 2000, he was still on the, uh, the Suns. He had a guard-based team that he really uh, wanted to free up. And in order to free up, you have to clear the lane. So the NBA decided to replace what had been known as illegal defense, which basically prevented you from uh, going into a zone. Okay, it was and the NBA up until two thousand one was strictly man to man defense, and you, and college was the bastion of zone defense, which is why a lot of Syracuse players have washed out in the NBA. That's another story. Um, but there is a but they decided that. The way they were going to do this was to allow zone defense. And the only way you can do that is to replace defense or illegal defense. You would get two illegal defense a game, and then it would be one illegal defense, and it would be just a side out. And then a second legal defense would be a technical, and every illegal defense after that would be a technical. Um, and the league, in its infinite wisdom, decided to. Uh, replace it with defensive three seconds. Well, what that did and what their theory was based on the eggheads who were around at the time was to open up the lane for guard penetration. And the entire reason for this, since they couldn't officiate Shaquille O'Neal, their entire reason for doing this was to make Shaquille O'Neal less effective. And it took years, by the way, for this to happen. By the time Shaquille O'Neal retired, it had started to become more of a guard-dominated league. Um, but it took a while for it to take effect. And it also took the coup de grace of the league in 2005 finally saying we are going to aggressively enforce hand-checking. There had been a hand check rule going all the way back to 1994, and they just never enforced it, um, largely because Michael Jordan, and if you see pictures of Michael Jordan riding someone's hip with his hand, uh, you, you know, there's probably about a million pictures of those. That's what Jordan did. That's what made Jordan the defensive player that he was. So he, the, 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 the league altered this, and what that did was expand the lane. Expanding the lane expanded the the spacing, and it took a while for this to um, come into being. But what the NBA didn't take into account was players jacking shots from 35 feet out. That was something that was never in their thought pattern. Um, if you ask the league, um, they will tell you that Daryl Morey's experiment with the 
Rockets G League team back in uh, 2011, I think. In 2011 or 12 is where they really started to uh, push the boundaries because what was realized with the lack of hand checking and the lack of uh, ability to play man to man and the lane be not being occupied is that the league between became a league of layups, dunks, free throws, and threes, and no mid range. Because of this, offensive diversity kind of went bonkers, um, and the league didn't anticipate guys like Steph Curry. Um, didn't anticipate James Harden, Trey Young, um, Damian Lillard, people who were jack shots up at, uh, at 30 to 35 feet away from the basket. And this lack of, lack of unforesight, obviously you can never blame them for that. I certainly don't. But what it did was created this funhouse mirror. And one of the big problems that we have in the league right now is that, you know, unless you go and play all guards, you are never going to account for the spacing that the league has manufactured. You cannot have any guys in the lane. There can, you cannot... You, and some of this is like, you know, the, in the, in the entire point of basketball is spacing. The entire point of basketball is manufacturing spacing. That's what it is. And back in the 90s, it was manufacturing enough mid-range shots to where you can get guards to get layups. That's basically what it was. And then you had the post-ups and stuff like that. And the post-ups didn't get really bad until the late 90s. But... The, 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 the league's Pandora's box has been opened, and now defense is basically impossible, and it is 100% because of spacing. You cannot out-athlete spacing. And the league tried to do a change where it was like no longer call, doing calls and these rip-throughs and stuff like that, and no, no longer uh, trying to get these guys to flop or, and all this stuff. And, of, of course, it regresses back to the mean. It always does. Or like all NBA officiating does. And uh, they stop calling those calls and stuff like that. But the league has had a spacing problem, and now it's the opposite of the way it was in 1999. Now you have a league that is too spaced, and it has made defense impossible, absolutely impossible. My one rules change would be this. I would eliminate defensive three seconds, and I would constrict, begin constricting the league. Nothing prevents people from jacking shots at 35 feet, even back in 1992 you know, five, um, people could still do that. Reggie Miller shot a lot of three point shots. He didn't, you know, it's not the, the volume that it is now, but th that's what it was. And, but the problem is a lot of the times is the lane is are far too open because of defensive three seconds. So you have two things that are going against defenses. You can't hand check them, which the NBA will never bring back. Take this to heart. To if you are if you, if, if the very few things I'm sure of in this life, and one of them is that the NBA will never bring back hand checking. It just will never happen. You could bring back defense, you know, illegal defense, and you could eliminate zone defenses, and you could allow 
constrict pace that spacing in, in, in the lane um, to cut off the abundance of layups that happen due to people having to stick to their man in ridiculous spacing in the, in the league. That is the only way. Um, I don't see any other rules change that the NBA could implement that would mitigate the spacing advantage that offenses have. Um, there was a proposal years ago to create a four-point shot that would have been ridiculous. That would have that would have made offenses just uh, insane. Um, as of right now, they live and die by three-point shots. Well, that is because basically three-point shots have been are are probably to certain three-point shots are probably worth more than three shots based on analytics. I mean, this is me being sarcastic, but um, it is it is you cannot expand anymore. There's no way the league can space itself out anymore and defenses will never ever be able to have an even footing in this league which is what the nba wanted in 2001 when they implemented this rule after Shaq was destroying the league but now it is the law of unintended consequences and the league never thought it would look like this never thought it would look like this and the only way to bring some sanity and some defense back into this league is to eliminate defensive three seconds, replace it with legal defense like it was through most of its history all the way up to 2001, and maybe start constricting things a little and maybe make the paint less patrollable. It, and it will compress the league because... Because that is what it needs. It, ne- I think the perfect offense the league had was about 2007 to 2011, where the NBA understood the value of the three, but still had some mid-range shots. There was balanced offense. And the lack of balance is largely because eggheads had figured out that you can shoot these 35-foot threes and face zero consequences for it because of the spacing. And that is that has turned defense to a nigh-on impossible task. And I think that part is something that we need to explore, bring back a legal defense, eliminate defensive three seconds, and let's constrict the league again. Because there is no way you're going to be able to out-athlete spacing. You just can't do it. So, anyway, thank you all for joining me on the latest Morecast. Enjoy the Nuggets game tonight. Well, by the time this posts, it'll be over. But uh, enjoy uh, the Nuggets. Hope you enjoyed it. And uh, I'll be back soon with another episode. Goodbye.